Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you will ever wear. Many of you know this because you are ordering socks from Mack Weldon. Thank you. I appreciate that. Mack Weldon socks feel great. They look great. Derek, you kind of established you. Can you testify? They look incredibly comfortable. My God. Derek Thompson, noted author, says they look incredibly comfortable. They are incredibly comfortable. I wore them skiing the other day. That's a good test. Yeah, they worked. And yeah. they're working right now. I look awesome. I feel awesome. They're made from naturally antimicrobial fiber, so they smell great. I smell great. Um, they're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. For some reason, Derek Thompson, if you bought these things and you didn't like them, guess what you do? Just send them back? You keep them. Refund? You keep them. They oh. send you your money back. Oh. It's some sort of internet economics. I don't really know how it works, but it works, and they keep doing this, so let's keep doing it. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code Recode. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a funny name. I'm talking to the normally named Derek Thompson, who's written an awesome book called Hitmakers. Hello, Derek. Hey, Peter. Um, you've got a day job, too, right? I do, writing yes. Books. You're a senior editor at The Atlantic? I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic. Uh, the title doesn't mean a whole lot. I don't consider myself terrifically senior, and I actually don't edit anything, but I do write you for The Atlantic. You work at The Atlantic, a very fancy publication. You write very smart, brainy stuff, and you're kind of the person who terrifies me because you're like 14 years old? Uh, 30. Just 30? 30. Yeah. Oh, I feel so much better. I thought you were 25, <laughs> but still intimidatingly bright. Many of you know Derek's stuff. He writes stuff about media and many other interesting topics. You, he gets passed around on Twitter a lot. Brainy people that I talk to cite him as someone they read, so I oh, thought wow. you guys should, you. should hear from him as well. And he's got a book to talk about. Let's talk about the book, Hitmakers. You are going to explain to me and everyone else who listens and reads you how to become instantly popular. You're going to make this enormously popular podcast even more popular if I just read the book. That's yes. the deal? Yes. The Magic Sprinkled Dust is going to be sprinkled on this podcast in particular, and it's going to go absolutely wild online, I so, predict. So let's, let's tease this out a bit before you tell us the secret to making things viral and popular and instant hits. Why did you decide to write about this? It's a great question. By day, I'm really a macroeconomics and uh, labor markets writer. Uh, oh, I am fascinated by uh, you know welfare states and the direction of the economy. And you know, I became an economics writer in 2009, which was a terrible time for the economy. But you're like just time. out of college. Like, just yeah, right. Here. Just out of I'm going to be an economics writer. That seems like a good idea. Well, I, I was really a generalist, and but the economy was falling apart, and so was, there was this massive need for people to explain what the heck was going on, and. You know, a terrible time for the country, a great time to be an economics writer. And as the economy recovered and got a little bit sort of uh, homeostatic, uh, I went sort of looking around for other things that I could write about with the same sort of formula of you do a little bit of reporting, you throw in a little bit of historical context, and then maybe you add a bit of uh, psychological theory to explain why things sure. happen. Super easy. Super. That's why everyone does this right out of college. But it's, it's just it's the it was the most fun way for me to uh, explain all the weird things that were happening. And so I gradually realized that uh, media and entertainment and cultural products were a great place to hop to with that same formula: dash reporting, a little bit of history, a little bit of psychology. So unlike a lot of other people who write about media, like myself, you didn't harbor, you didn't say, "Oh, I want to be on SNL," or "I don't want to be on SNL." But uh, you didn't think, "Oh, I want to create this stuff," and said, instead I'll end up writing about it. You sort of backed into it a different way. You thought, I want to write about economics because I'm that kind of person. Um, here's one way I can do it. 
Yeah, in an interesting way, it's a return to what I wanted to do at the very beginning. Before I wanted to be a writer, I really wanted to be an actor. Oh, I now we know. I okay. loved acting. I loved musical theater. I loved doing all the nerdy stuff. And it just became clear to me that even as much as I adored acting and singing, that uh, writing was the job more likely to pay the bills. And so I went into writing. I, you know studied politics and economics in college, and being an economics writer was what paid the bills at, at 23, 24. But this book offered sort of a nice opportunity to combine my uh, teenage uh, fantasies to uh, surround myself in pop culture and the way that I spent my 20s, which is to research sort of the empirical underpinnings of economics and culture markets and stuff like that. You guys got all that? <laughs> out, out there in podcast land, your head spinning. Don't be intimidated. Derek's Wicked Smart. It's a very accessible book. There's a lot going on there. Sometimes you feel a little bit dumb if you're reading it. Uh, Derek, at one point you, you mentioned uh, the famous Bourdieu 1980 sociological study, and I thought... I'm glad this is near the end of the book. It is near the end of the book. I know very little about that book. Yeah, I I know zero. If you'd (laughs) invented that person, I would believe you. But it's it's really it's broken up into little nuggets, and and basically, I sort of think of it as like a series of blog posts, almost like every couple pages. There's a new cool idea. So here's my main question: When I read a Malcolm Gladwell book or a Michael Lewis book, or I listen to the Freakonomics guys, they generally have one through line, one big idea that sort of carries you through the book. Maybe I didn't read it correctly, but it didn't look like there was one of them in in this book. Yeah, I I think that there are probably two. Um, I think the big idea that animates the first half of the book is uh, this concept of what I call familiar surprises. Oh, we should give the subtext, the the subtitle, or the subhead. What do we call this? This, The subhead. The subhead. The book is called Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. Okay, so the two through lines are... So the first through line I would say is uh, this concept of uh, what I call familiar surprises, which is this idea that audiences uh, are torn between two opposing forces. On the one hand, they're neophilic. Uh, They love new things. They love new podcast episodes. They love new movies and new music. And at the same time, they're incredibly neophobic. Uh, they're afraid of anything that's too new. And this is true across basically every single cultural product category. You want things that are familiar, but not too familiar. You want things that are new, but not too new. Right. And so you look at you, let's, you look at Hollywood movies. You look at the most popular films, and they're almost all sequels, adaptations, and reboots. Uh, you look at people's appetite for music, and they tend to like new songs that have really familiar chord structures or new songs by their favorite bands. I think this is even true for political ideas. Uh, We love reading essays that express a prior ideology in a fresh and interesting and memorable way and don't want to be too challenged by a complicated idea that we're predisposed to disagree with. So you don't really want your head snapped by a thought or a melody or an idea you haven't processed before, but if you hear the same thing, see the same thing over and over again, you eventually get turned off by it. That's absolutely true. And one of, you know, one of the most basic ideas in psychology, one of the most reproducible findings is this thing called mere exposure effect which is the idea that the mere exposure of a stimulus to you, whether it's a a genre of music or a political idea, the mere exposure of it biases you toward it over time. You fall in love with the sneakily familiar. Uh, And so it turns out this is the exact same idea, uh, that we love familiar ideas, but we particularly love being surprised by this feeling of familiarity, of confronting it where we didn't expect to find it. So that's number one thing, which is 
things that are popular are familiar but not too familiar, new but not too new. Number yep. two is? Number two is that I think when people try to assess why a certain product is popular, we tend to overly focus on the product itself. And we don't think about the context, about the way it was distributed, about the way it was marketed. It's <laughs> got, 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 uh, got a little extra. It's a preview. Uh, and so what the second half of the book tries to do is to use all of these, the wonderful things that a lot of these interesting network scientists have looked at to say, this is actually how information spreads online. Uh, this is how people pass information to each other. Um, and so the idea that distribution is uh, the most important part of a product, I think, is something that a lot of audiences don't recognize but anybody in the entertainment media world know all too well. How, how it gets to you is just as important as what the thing is. Precisely. Another way of saying it is there's this ongoing debate in media, in media economics, about is content king, is distribution king, and your answer basically is both. Well, I think, I think distribution is probably more important. It, it, the, the way it gets to you is more important than what it is. Absolutely. You can say that a song is the best song in the world. You can say that uh, an idea is the best for people's welfare or that a movie is the best documentary of its kind. But without a distribution strategy to reach people, nobody hears it. Uh, and so distribution, uh, I think, is paramount. I think, I don't remember if you wrote it this way or if this is my uh, summary of your thought, probably mine because it sounds less bright. Popular things get more popular. That's part of what you're saying, right? Popularity things, things are popu popular. Yeah, things yeah. are popular in part because they're popular. It's almost a tautology. Am I summarizing that correctly, that the internet is actually accelerating some of this? Absolutely. Popul I would say that popularity is a signal. It tells people that something is good. The really interesting thing, though, is that different audiences have different tastes for popularity. So, for example, uh, you tell a, let's say, maybe Des Moines, Iowan housewife that a vacuum cleaner is the number one best-selling vacuum cleaner. And she'll see that popularity as a really positive signal, and she'll buy it. It's the same way that people feel about Top 40 music. I like that song because it's popular. But, you know, living near Brooklyn, as I do, and living in Brooklyn, as I believe you do, there are lots of people, let's call them hipsters, who see popularity as a negative signal. If that song is too popular, they see that as a bad thing. They, would, the probably, movie... they would probably buy the same vacuum cleaner as the Des Moines housewife if they bought a vacuum cleaner. But yeah, they take pride in sort of going away from the edge. Right. Um, that's if they think about it a lot, right? A lot of this stuff you're saying is unconscious or subconscious. There's an experiment you talk about there where people change the ordering of popularity. Of They present things to people and they say, this is the most popular whatever and then they flip it around and say, no, this is the most popular whatever. And it turns out that whatever you tell people is most popular is the thing they'll like the most. Exactly. Yeah, this is one of the most famous studies of cultural products uh, by Duncan Watts and several other people. It's and the they essentially. for Yahoo, right? It was Yahoo. Right, chief, exactly. Chief Microsoft. Virologist. virologist? Yes, he's right. He's, the, he's like the chief smart guy of, of virality. And he basically had this famous study where, very briefly, he essentially showed people the same list of music. Um, and to some people, he showed the actual list of popularity, one songs listed 1 through 48. And then to other people, he just reversed the list. So the 48th most popular song was falsely listed as the most popular. And in both music worlds, people just downloaded whatever song was listed number one, whether it was good or not. So again, you see that most people have a positive taste for popularity. They are predisposed to something a little bit more just by thinking and that it's popular. By the way, the, the notion that the, the hipster in Brooklyn doesn't like to do popular things, you can, you can counter that pretty easily by going to Williamsburg and noticing that everyone's got the same facial hair or mm -hmm. same variant of it. Um, now, I assume that the, the, the fact that I watched football this weekend and Joe Buck 
who's the squarest, whitest announcer <laughs> yes. or one of them, now has sort of a three-day stubble thing going on, which I assume now the Williamsburg folks will like completely go bald and, and shaven at some point. Yeah, isn't this sort of the classic, uh, you know, upside-down you hype cycle where, you know, the hipsters will start to do something and then it'll be mainstreamed by some Sunday Styles article in the New York Times and then the squares like Joe Buck will essentially try to have the same, you know, four o'clock shadow and at that point the people who don't want to look like Joe Buck will essentially say, Jesus, this trend has gotten way out of hand, and they'll go and search for something else. I just realized that I'm freshly shaven, so maybe I'm more cutting edge than I thought. Wow. We're going to hear from one of our cutting edge, super popular, super awesome sponsors right now. We'll be back in a minute. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? That's great, because if you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners will get 60% off. Visit HostGator.com Recode. That's HostGator, like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R dot com slash Recode. Thanks, awesome advertiser. Back here with Derek Thompson, who's written Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. When he's not writing awesome books, he is working at The Atlantic. Derek Thompson, you have a day job writing at The Atlantic. You wrote I, a, you wrote, I was going to say I wrote a novel. You wrote this really interesting book that talks all about the science of popularity. It seems like someone who understands so much about the science of popularity should not be working at The Atlantic. You should be running ESPN or a giant media conglomerate or any other thing where, where that kind of knowledge could really help you. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're very good at making your blog posts go viral, but um, I'm assuming you, you've got this question before, right? Um, if you know so much about this, why don't you go do it? There's a variant of it, which is, tell me how to do it. Right. You know, there's this great quote that everybody in media seems to know by William Goldman, the screenwriter for who he wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. He wrote The Princess Bride, most well known though for his three word quote, nobody knows anything. The, there, there's an which, emoji equivalent, which is the dude sort of raising the his hands. The shruggy yeah, man, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And this, to many people, is a kind of, you know, a motto of ambiguous ignorance in media entertainment. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> On the other hand, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the ancient Greeks. They said, there's a secret to beauty. It's the golden ratio. It's 1.1618, and it explains why temples are beautiful and flowers are beautiful and art is beautiful. And of course, this book falls somewhere in the middle. On the one hand, there is no formula. If there were a formula, eventually everyone would figure out what it were. So there should be an asterisk saying there is no formula in this book. Sure, right, yeah. yeah. That there is no formula. If there were a formula, everyone would figure out what it is, and they'd make a bunch of products based on that formula, which means no... One product would be particular po particularly popular because they'd all be self-same. But on the other hand, it's not true that nobody knows anything. Instead, what I found is true is that lots of people know a little bit. And what was so fun about writing the book is, you know, talking to a pop songwriter for The Weeknd, Nariana Grande, and then talking to, say, a musicologist of musical illusions, and then talking to, like, a Barack Obama speechwriter, and realizing that they were all saying the same things about repetition and the variation of uh, sort of harmony and dissonance when writing either a pop song or a speech. And so that was the real fun of the book, is taking what different experts know and uh, putting them in a virtual room together to talk to each other. So I don't think I have the formula. I don't think there is a formula. Um, but I do think that people in various industries can learn a lot about the 
cultural products they're making by paying attention to industries that seemingly had nothing to do with their business. So I'm a, I'm a very busy, highly compensated C-suite executive or would like to be one. So I don't have any time. I don't have time to read your book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll pay you a lot to come to come put some, oh, some knowledge you. in my brain. Give me one quick thing that will help me make my product uh, improve my – I'm not a dummy, so I get that I can't make something a hit, but I can improve my chances. What's the best way for me to improve my chances tomorrow? Sure. I think that there's this concept of viral marketing that has just gotten completely out of hand. Uh, And one of the chapters in this book uh, is called The Viral Myth about how uh, network scientists who've looked at the spread of information have essentially said, ideas don't spread like viruses at all, and we should stop talking about virality. Uh, Instead, the products that we say when, quote, viral, almost always piggyback on social networks that already exist, that Facebook initially went viral not by building a product uh, that every single person shared with five other people, like you might share a disease, but by using networks that existed. They digitized the Harvard network that already existed and the Ivy League networks that already existed. Uh, And you compare that to, say, a product like Bumble, the online dating app, which other people have said, oh, well, it went viral. Well, not really. Uh, What Whitney Wolf, the head of Bumble, did was she went to colleges in the South. And this is the woman who was at Tinder. Was at Tinder, right, exactly. There was a lawsuit. Things didn't end well. She said, I'm going to create my own version of Tinder. Right. But the way that she got this product to go, quote, viral is fascinating and incredibly telling, I think, for anybody trying to make their product popular. What she would do is she would go to a Southern university, and she would go to the hottest sorority that was there, and she would say, here's a bunch of goodies. Everyone, please get on this app. And I, I promise you that other people can get on this app soon, but here's a bunch of goodies. So she'd get the whole attractive sorority. Then she'd go to the best-looking fraternity, and she would say, hey, guys, look at this app. Open up your phone and look at all these attractive women on it. And they would say, wow, we, we really have to get on this app. So she would get, she would sort of like what uh, Silicon Valley people call a, a bowling pin strategy, right? One ball, many pins at once. And she would get these, the hottest sorority, hottest fraternity on the app at once, and then sell all the other frats and sororities yep. on that app. So again, not really making the product go viral, uh, piggybacking on the social networks that existed in order so, to create a critical mass. So two things on virality, because you touched on this a couple different times. You talk about uh, uh, Instagram, which is when it launched, like a million other photo sharing apps that already existed, a bunch of things come after that. And you put a lot of stock in the fact that that people like Dorsey, Dorsey was the main one, Jack Dorsey, yeah. the founder of Twitter, M.G. Siegler, some other technorati, yep. all sort of endorsed it around the same time and gave it critical mass. But that's a strategy I see people trying to emulate all the time. Same idea of, of, of the Bumble strategy, right? Well, let's get some cool slash hot kids to like this thing, and other people will like it. You see that all the time outside a club, right? Who gets in, who get the, who doesn't. Mm-hmm. This is a thing that lots of people know about, and obviously there's more to it than just trying that strategy, right? Lots of people are already using a version of this strategy. Right. And so I think what, what Winnie Wolf said that was really interesting, I thought, is she said, you know, it used to, it used to work if I just visited a sorority. Um, I used to be able to sell them on this. And now what I need to do is essentially find like a proxy who lives inside of these networks that is trusted. Because I think what you find is that once people become savvy to the marketing strategy, they, they discount it. They don't want to do it anymore. And so what she has to do is to essentially find that person who's inside of the sorority or the fraternity who can act as her proxy and to get that network online anyway. Um, but I mean, like, I mean, this, again, it's a very very old strategy. You see it. You see it employed many times. If you're old like me, and you remember uh, the idea of, of street teams, 
for music in the late 90s and you would find cool kids and pay them a little bit of money or give them free t-shirts to go out and push your mixtape or your Britney Spears song or whoever. And, and obviously this goes back hundreds of years. So is there anything really new here or just technology accelerates all this? I think technology accelerates it, but I also, I also think that, I think A, that it is widely misunderstood by people who think that content is king, that you just make something that's inherently clicky and people will just automatically share it. Uh, I think that's the opposite from what the bowling pin strategy suggests. And then second, you know, I, one of my best friends is uh, starting a, um, a mobile money app that essentially allows people to, especially uh, Ethiopian uh, diasporan immigrants, uh, to essentially have a Venmo network among each other and trying to start this in Ethiopia. And the really interesting thing about following the evolution of his company is seeing how difficult it is to essentially find uh, the equivalent of that sorority or that fraternity. Because there are some places, like find some the restaurants- the NG Siegler of Ethiopia. Right. No, right, exactly. Or to find the network that already exists. So find that, you know, restaurant in Maryland where all these people are already congregating, where it's essentially like this water pump. And so that, that ends up being the most interesting challenge is finding that location, uh, that restaurant or that sort of organization um, where you can, where this bowling strategy is most effective. And, and the other part of the virality thing that you talk about, which is interesting, and it's, by the way, you're super smart because by going after virality, you've automatically sort of picked a fight with a lot of prominent people. So you can have a Twitter war with Malcolm Gladwell, hopefully. Um, people like me will ask you what Malcolm Gladwell thinks about this. You can answer that in a second because this was one of the, the very big ideas, the tipping point, right, and that's sort of the hush puppies example. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing that I think will uh, make me feel better if I'm a C-suite executive who runs a big media company or runs Facebook is that a lot of what you seem to be saying is, hey, you know what helps things go viral or make, makes them popular is they get launched from a really big platform. It's cool to find the cool sorority, but if you're in the New York Times or BuzzFeed or ESPN and you push out an idea, lots of people learn about it. Or if you're Ashton Kutcher and a handful of really important influencers, you have a really big megaphone. And that's what makes things popular is a push from us, a handful of people or platforms. Yes. And so if I'm one of those platforms that often feels like, oh, I'm going to be undercut, I'm going to be disrupted. Actually, you should say, no, no, I've got a really powerful platform here that I can use. I shouldn't feel that bad about it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I think that one of the things you find is that uh, if it is true that basically nothing goes viral in the classic understanding of, of sort of viral spread, then broadcast platforms are even more important than we thought. And then if you look inside, uh, for example, the information cascade of so-called viral videos or viral tweets, if you can actually find a way to measure, to, to look at a picture of how that information is spreading from person to person, uh, it turns out that that picture rarely looks like the way that a viral disease spreads with many, many, many generations of one to two and one to three Taking sharing. it up on their own, sharing it to one other person who shares it to one other person. Right. That information cascade actually almost always looks something more like a bomb fuse, where it's shared once, 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 and then it hits Aston Kutcher and it hits a million people at once. And, you know, Aston Kutcher is a broadcaster, right? Justin Bieber is a broadcaster. Um, in the book, I call them dark broadcasters because sometimes you have people who discover uh, the YouTube video or the tweet or the you know mannequin challenge meme, and it's maybe one degree separated from that Ashton Kutcher tweet. But the way that that information is spreading is still through a broadcast mechanism. And so I think that we underrate uh, how important these sort of dark broadcast moments are and how powerful individual broadcasters like Justin Bieber and Ashton Kutcher are at spreading information online. So like many smart young people, you're promoting yourself by saying, I'm taking on an established idea that people believe and I'm saying it's bullshit. I call you out. 
I don't think you actually go after Malcolm Gladwell by name in the book, but maybe you do. Uh, no, not by name, but uh, but absolutely the viral myth is, is had, against ideas that, that he and some other people have established. Have you yet. floated this by him? Have you gotten a response yet? Uh, no, I mean, I'm not... The, I'm the trying important to get, thing, trying to get right, a, exactly, a, a little bit of a rise, yeah. yeah. Um, look, I think that Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book that was really influential for its time and that its evolution has led to a faith in sort of uh, free viral marketing um, that is just not borne out by the evidence. And he and another guy who I quote a lot from in the book, Duncan Watts, have been in a bit of a sort of cold war for the last decade and a half. Uh, Duncan Watts uh, has had uh, more targeted words uh, for Gladwell's work than I uh, specifically have uh, in the book. Um, but I do think that, that Duncan uh, is right, that the best way to describe how most information spreads uh, is not virality. Uh, it is a series of dark broadcasts. Uh, and the way that a lot of information gets really, really popular, even these so-called viral memes that we end up seeing, is that we see them because the information went so-called viral among the broadcasters. That, for example, something like the Mannequin Challenge or some weird like Twitter or Snapchat meme, CNN will pick up on it. And then Fox News will see that CNN picked yep. up on it. And Vox will see that Fox saw that CNN picked up on yes. it. And it turns out that the way that tens of millions of people find out about it is through those broadcasts. No, no there's, and there's actual software now that says, I mean, we've there's something called CrowdTangle that, that Facebook just bought. And it's it seems incredibly simple. But it basically just says, hey, this is a thing that's popular other places. Right. Maybe it, you'd like to write about it. That's one of the reasons. You, I mean, we've actually... We've actually sort of institutionalized this idea that you yes. should do it. And sometimes as a writer, that makes you feel terrible because what's the point of rewriting the thing that's on another site? And sometimes you think, well, actually, maybe people want to read about it. Yeah. What's interesting about this is you mentioned the sort of this this debate about, you know, the long tail versus the fat head. This is one reason why, you know, the hits in digital media and music and movies are bigger than ever. It's because you have all of these uh, media organizations who are fascinated with, obsessed with telling everybody else what's popular and constantly ranking things to show people what's the most popular meme, what's the most popular song. And so people are surrounded with all of this information and are curious to figure it out. And because you have all of these broadcasters constantly fixated on distributing the most popular stuff, it makes that most popular stuff more popular than ever. There's a cool passage at the end of your book where you go see Tony Hale, who was then the CEO of Chartbeat. This is the, the analytics dashboard that everyone in digital media has, and, and depending on the way you live your life, you may find yourself just going back to it minute after minute, like the rat and the pellet. Mm -hmm. And then you go downstairs from meeting Tony, where, uh, and then you go to the Strand. So you go from, from high-tech to super low-tech, and you have this thought, which many of us have, which is, okay, Chartbeat tells me everything I could possibly want to know about how my media is being consumed, and that feedback loop is super important because I want to figure out what's going on. I want to figure out how to respond to it. And then you go pick up Voltaire or whomever, right. someone I haven't read, and uh, you think, oh, no one would ever write a novel. Or anything, really, and anything of length, if someone was judging them minute to minute and giving them that feedback that all the conventional wisdom says we want today and is, is super important to have. Um, this is the whole premise of BuzzFeed right now. John Pratty will talk over and over about all, all the feedback he wants and how that loop makes all the products better. So I'm assuming you go back and forth on this. I mean, all that feedback's great. All that feedback's great. All that feedback is paralyzing and eventually creates sameness and no one's going to do anything original. The feedback is great and the feedback is paralyzing. And I was talking to one, another writer for uh, a New York Magazine while I was working on this. And he said, you know, the hardest thing about, you know, knowing what to do with all this charping information is that you can't forget what you know. So if, you, if it turns out that writing some incredibly salacious headline and some uh, bit of moral outrage it does better online than the deeply reported article, 
a part of your soul is telling you that deeply reported article is why I got into journalism. It's it's why I do what I do. Um, but it's just so hard to forget that the emotional appeal, it gives readers more to talk about. It gives readers, I think, a little bit of a of an emblem to share on Facebook that people, I think, share moral outrage because it makes them look uh, morally pious. And so one of the difficult things that I face with writing online all the time is, you know, how much stock do you put in to these feedback loops? And I, I try to strike a balance, but there's definitely some times when I can, I, I worry that, you know, I'm, I'm overselling something just because I have a very strong feeling like that's going to get it more read. I mean, in my career, the, the notion of, of getting feedback instant feedback in writing mm-hmm. has gone from, what are you talking about? Who would ever do that? To now the conventional wisdom, you have to be really weird to not do it. You have to be really old. Yeah. I mean, if you're that old, you're probably not employed, frankly, at, at this point. And and it's, I guess to, to take a stance against it would be sort of would be iconoclastic. Yeah. Um, but everyone says, of course you would want to know more about what who's consuming your stuff and whether or not it has an audience. And if no one's reading it, why are you doing it? But again, you go back to CrowdTangle and everyone writing about the exact same viral video. And a way to think about this, I think, is that uh, tastes have become transparent, whereas for the vast majority of sort of art and journalism history, tastes were extremely opaque. What kind of art do people like? What do they look at when they open the newspaper? Even questions like, what's their favorite music? There was no digital feedback loop to tell producers uh, the answers to these questions and what audiences really wanted. And there are some really interesting consequences to what happens when you hold up a more perfect mirror to audience taste. For example, I tell the story of the Billboard Hot 100, which came out in the 1950s and for a long time was nominally a measure of the most popular music in the country. Deeply um, flawed, but it deeply, was deeply corrupt. BS, yeah. Uh, they didn't have any way to measure point of sales data. They didn't have any way to measure radio airplay. So when Billboard was trying to report on this stuff, they would call radio DJs who were being paid by the labels, and they would call uh, you know, vinyl stores who would often lie for a really simple reason. If you've sold out a Bruce Springsteen and you have a bunch of ACDC, then why do you tell people that Bruce Springsteen is popular? You need to sell out of ACDC. So there was this artificial churn that happened with Billboard um, where popular songs would hit number one and fall right off. And so in 1991, they started using point-of-sales data, and they started uh, monitoring airplay. And two amazing things happened almost overnight. First, the hair bands absolutely fell off the map. And hip-hop, which had been rising slowly through the 1980s, suddenly soared, and we're still living in a hegemony of hip-hop-inflected music. I think two weeks after the Billboard charts changed, N.W.A.'s uh, album became uh, the number one album in the country. But the other thing that happened is that music taste got really repetitive. It turned out that when songs hit Billboard, uh, they just stayed there for weeks and weeks and weeks. When people had a choice to listen to whatever they wanted, they just listened to the same music. Let me hear that same thing again. Over and over again. So, you know, in Billboard, to sum up, they changed the methodology and it elevated hip-hop, but also made pop music much more repetitive. And I think that's a good thing followed by a somewhat dubious thing. What measure are you going to use to track hit makers. It's your Amazon ranking? Is that, is that what's core for you? What's, what's the most important metric you want to use? Well, yeah, there's the Amazon ranking. Um, there's, uh, you know, the New York Times bestseller uh, list is probably the, the billboard of, of music. The Amazon list is interesting because, you know, the New York Times doesn't just take the Amazon list and publish it online. If they did, half of that list would be cookbooks. So you, you, you take a smattering, but then also, you know, I'm not working for a studio. I'm not working for a label. Um, my interest is not 
purely to maximize the popularity of of this thing. I'd also, you know, love it if people said nice things about it. Love it if I if I saw it making any sort of impact. And you strike I, me as the kind of person who might have an influence tracker, Google Google Docs somewhere, where you you, you track various tweets. That's a fantastic and, guy, an influence tracker. Yeah. No, I don't quite have that. I suppose we all, in a way, have our mental yeah, models of influence trackers. One, yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Invisible. Ones. Uh, one last uh, company-specific question for you, or one other question for you. Um, you and I are both interested in ESPN, mm-hmm. um, very important media company. Um, you talk about the way that the current management there sort of revitalized Sports Center by making it a narrative, right? It's not an accident that if you go to – I haven't checked the Sports Center today. They're going to be talking about Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, right. and they'll talk about them all week because that's the story. And that would have happened normally, but they, they have intentionally – weighed heavily on particular storylines or the Golden State Warriors. So that's an intentional track they've taken. You, you think it has worked for them. But they're still under great pressure, right, because so cable has structural issues. So do you think that that tack will be enough to keep them afloat, or do you think eventually that doesn't matter? Uh, I think you set it up beautifully. I think All right, that done. yeah, right. I think that uh, in the late two thousands, they did exactly what they needed to do to make Sports Center a more popular product by. Uh, really taking a lesson out of Hollywood's playbook and saying what people tune into time and time again are are uh, superhero storylines. So let's pick a handful of superheroes and let's just tell their story over and over again so people keep tuning in. I think that was the right tack. But it was the right tack in the structural environment that was not favorable to ESPN at all. ESPN is the most expensive network to carry, which means that cable companies and the telecom companies who actually bring television to people's homes were incentivized uh, to drop them to offer packages that didn't include ESPN. So they were victims of their own success uh, in that regard. And then they're also operating in an environment where the the passionate new sports fan base is fleeing the traditional television model. Uh, if you read people like you know Matthew Ball, who's now uh, doing strategy at and research at um, at Amazon Studios, you know he has all these graphs showing that that traditional TV minutes have fallen something like 45 percent among viewers between the age of eighteen and thirty five. Um, that's a bloodbath, and that's not a bloodbath where you know a brilliant media strategy at ESPN is going to magically save them. Um, but they need to do something. So Bob Iger reads your book, says you're a smart dude, and you apparently like football. You're in charge of ESPN, Derek Thompson. What do you do? Wow, what a great question. Here's what ESPN obviously has. They obviously have unbelievable reach to audiences that care voraciously about their favorite teams and their favorite storylines. Uh, there's a stat in the book that says that every single time they want to send a news alert about the Golden State Warriors – a phone vibrates in more pockets than the combined metro populations of San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, if distribution is primary to content prim- and primary to everything else, then that is a massive uh, advantage. I would absolutely encourage them to build with beginning with that, understanding that they have a lock hold on the lock screen of tens of millions of people around the country and around the world and build an advertising product and maybe even a subscription product around news that comes straight to the phone. The problem with that being a uh, panacea for ESPN's problems is what economists some call sometimes call a, a rate level problem. Um, mm. Even if mm, the- sounds good. 
Okay, right. Even if the level of ESPN's popularity is still extremely high, the problem is the rate is falling from such a height that they're going to continue to be seen as a loser in the media ecosystem as long as traditional television business models continue to change. And I just foresee that they are for the next 10 years. These 31-year-olds who have gone nine years without cable aren't suddenly going to become uh, DirecTV subscribers, I don't think. They're happy with their Amazon yeah. Video and Netflix. And, and they know that, right? They may not say that publicly, but they know that they're going to keep dropping. And the optimistic version is, at some point, we're going to stop dropping. And at that point, we're going to continue to be an enormously popular asset. So there's a thing we need to get through right. that's going to be painful. And then some of that's about sort of corporate structure and who owns them and how they're owned and, and their cable deals. But we're, people aren't going to stop liking sports, or not a lot of people are going to stop liking sports. In fact, right. I think everyone who likes sports will continue to like it. Yes. We just may go from 90 million subscribers to 80, yep. 70, 60. There's some level where it stops. That's right. I, I, would, I would also uh, answer the question this way. As the head of Disney, where I don't just control ESPN, I also control the most popular movie franchises in the world. I have Lucas, I have Pixar, I have all of our intellectual property from decades of awesome Disney cartoons and stuff. I don't know why, I mean, other than, I suppose, uh, contracts and and those sunset clauses, but eventually they have to offer a Netflix, right? I mean, an over-the-top Disney product, which is the entire catalog of the most popular movies yep. of all time, plus that ABC content, plus the, uh, the uh, Disney Channel content. So you have what, what Netflix and HBO really want, which is uh, content for kids that's family-friendly. No- nothing's more family-friendly than Disney. An over-the-top product that combined all of this plus the library once it was freed from, I know they have obligations to Netflix right now. Um, I, I think it's just absolutely They've inevitable. Been talking about it for years. They haven't done it. They whisper, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We'll tell you about it. They did something like this in Europe, but haven't really done it. There's buying some tech that they think will allow them to do this, although I don't think they need that tech. And they keep edging up to it. I mean, the real reason they're not doing it, right, is that doing that means you have to disrupt your existing business. You have to pull mm-hmm. either actually break that deal with Netflix or, or not get that Netflix money. Right. And you go from a really sort of assured revenue stream to one that's much more up in the air. That's right. It's much more risky. Yeah. And they're, they're doing this, it's interesting because for such a long time, Disney's profits were dominated by the ESPN story, right? Between 2005 and 2012, I mean, every single year, it was like ESPN is Disney, ESPN is, or Disney is ESPN. And now ESPN uh, is in structural decline uh, in a way that even brilliant strategy I don't think is going to fix in the near term. But look at the last year they had in movies. I mean, they absolutely dominated the top 10 in movies. And so, you know, Disney is an incredibly well-distributed and well-diversified media product that doesn't, that I think has a bit of freedom because even if their television profits come under siege, they still have eight of the top 10 amusement parks in the world. They still have the most popular brands that they're turning out uh, sequels and adaptations to in the movie theaters every single year. And I, I, I would hope if I had that, you know, head of ESPN job, that I would use that as ballast to do something a little bit risky and uh, sort of long-term strategic. I think uh, if the they TV were product. privately held, they'd behave much differently. I think yes. there's enormous quarter-to-quarter pressure on them. So let's not talk about uh, public and private companies. Let's talk about media and products and things people like. We're going to try something here we haven't done before. We're going to quiz you, Derek Thompson. Oh, God. Not quite a quiz. I'm going to tell you what was popular this week mm-hmm. in a bunch of different mediums, and you're going to explain why. We'll Fine. start easy. A little note here. We're actually recording this in the past 
we're in mid-January. You guys are going to hear this in early February. So these are things that were popular in mid-January. They probably are still popular when you're listening to it right now. Another asterisk here. This is early January for the TV ratings. Um, the most popular television shows are, you, you wouldn't know this anyway, football, football, football. Big Bang Theory. More football. Golden Globes, surprisingly, was up this year. Big Bang, you got it. Simpsons, Modern Family. Um, So what's the through line here? Sports and and some sitcoms you've heard of. Right. The through line uh, is, I mean, on on a typical week, I'm really interested that that the Simpsons are up there. They might not be in the first week of February. But basically, the ratings every single week are dominated by football and CBS. And uh, I think that there's a structural demographic reason for both of that. On the one hand, you have football, which is just the king of media. And this is why CBS and Fox and ESPN pay through the nose for football rights is because they know that it's the most popular entertainment product in the world. They know that 20 million, 25 million people are going to tune in every week. Um, and as a result, they've spent, I think, $50 billion over the next decade. Even, uh, and and even if ratings rights. decline, they feel like that's the right bet to make or have made because and you can debate the price because it's the most popular thing. It, yeah, the, the one-eyed man in the, in the city of the blind sort of thing, that even if every, if, even if everything else is declining, football uh, is still looks to remain the relative king um, of entertainment. And then CBS is interesting because CBS is just a genius at making gerontocratic entertainment, honestly. Uh, no one else is so good at providing procedural catnip. There was a $10 word there. I think I know what you meant, but in case one of my listeners didn't get it. I was about about to define it. Uh, Procedural catnip to people over the age of 55. Uh, TV for olds. TV for olds. By the way, if you want to piss the CBS guys off, you tell them that. You say this is TV for people who might not know that that you could cut the cord. They may not know where the remote is. They may not know how to change the channel. You know what? If I'm less, I'm walking out there. If if I'm the CEO of... uh, of CBS, I am so proud of the fact that I am making a product that is a fit for the sort of structural demographic decline of traditional television. If you look across like sort of the demographic line at, you know, how much TV compared to 10 years ago are teens watching 30-year-olds and 60-year-olds, everyone is flat or way, way down except for 60-year-olds. The, the, old the, people like watching TV? I'm going to make TV for old people. Yes, I'm not embarrassed It's the it. most obvious thing. Say it thing. loud, say it proud. I, I would say it loud and say it proud if I was in his position. Let's talk about books. Uh, most popular nonfiction book this week in mid-January. Uh, this is a tough word for me, but it's Hillbilly Hill. Elegy. I think I know why this is popular, but you tell me. Well, I, th- I think it's popular because everybody has it considers it the... Rosetta Stone of uh, the Trump voter mindset. And this so is the, again... The subtitle could be Understanding Trump. Now, this came out during the summer. I remember reading right. an excerpt, maybe in the Atlantic, um, somewhere, New York Review of Books. Oh, was yep. it, there was an interview with J.D. Vance, the okay, writer, yeah. explaining the Trump voter. Right. Um, but this book, I mean, had the timing. It, I don't think it was d- deliberately done, but it basically is, is this is how to understand Trump voters. Trump's the most interesting, popular, consequential thing. In the world So right this now. book... It, yeah, is it, a Trump proxy. It's right. It, it's ways. it's your it's your glossary to the emotions of the overlooked Trump voter. If and you're a blue state, if you're a city mouse person who's trying to understand Trump people, this is the book that everyone says you should right. read. Yeah, and think about the fact that uh, you know uh, the interesting thing about comparing books to television, uh, as we're doing right now, is the difference in scale. Right? If you sell a hundred thousand books, you're a bestseller. If you have a hundred thousand concurrent viewers, lit, lit, no one is watching you statistically, right? And so, so television has a way of leading national media and popular arts conversations in the way that, that books don't. 
turn on news television, cable news television. What are people talking about? Trump. Every single segment is essentially the, the, the subtext of it is what the hell is going on and who can explain it. Well, here's the book that we've decided can explain it. So, Got it. Fiction. You want to guess who the, the author is? It's a woman. Danielle Steele. You got it. Did I? Dude, you're good. Wow. It's The Mistress. Apparently, it's a new book. All right, so... <laughs> How did you, did you... Are you familiar with The Mistress? I'm not familiar no, with The Mistress, nor mind. am I particularly familiar with, with Danielle Steele. Um, what, what's interesting about... Um, I did not prep you. you no, that no. That, Very um, good. I, uh, that's great. Um, it's interesting because you, you look at the nonfiction list, and I think Killing the Rising Sun might be number two right now, the, one of Bill O'Reilly's history books um, on the nonfiction list. And, you know, we think of sequelitis as being a, I won't say malady, but condition specific to Hollywood. But if you look at the best-selling books, it is a bunch of sequels. Thing it is, you liked before. It is a bunch of thing you liked before by it, either either a new a, a first-time writer on something that everybody's talking about or a previously popular writer about a new subject. It is read, familiar read surprise. Again. Familiar surprise, right? Got it. Well, that was super impressive. Uh, we got two more. Uh, movies, want to guess? Biggest movie, I think, did Hidden Figures just top yeah. Rogue One? Yeah, Hidden Figures. Story of African American women involved in the uh, in the, the space program. Weird marketing campaign, or at least weird to me because I didn't. I thought it was a Lifetime movie. Yep. When I kept seeing the billboards, it turns out it's an actual movie. Yep. Well liked. And people said, "Oh, it's it's doing surprisingly well, or it's mm-hmm. doing very well." The box office mojo number I, I looked at said they did fifty million. That's which awesome. Very good. Sing, which no one I know was talking about, I saw is very good. Came oh, out the cool. same time. Did two hundred and thirty three million. So that's a that's a real hit. Yeah, that's a real hit. Uh, but why is Hidden Figures popular? Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know a whole lot about Hidden Figures, but I do know that one of the themes of the last few years uh, in Hollywood has been this idea that Hollywood studios used to operate under the presumption uh, that the most popular entertainment was uh, sort of by white men for white men. And a realization is that, no, actually, there, there's a lot of women uh, in the United States, uh, and there's a lot of non-white people in the United States. I think actually... Uh, and that's going to continue to grow. It's crazy that it's 2016 and this is sort of a new idea. But it really, it really that, is. That, that the idea that like Fox this, has a surprise hit with Empire because it's yep. about African Americans created by African Americans. Right, or straight out of Compton. Where did that come from? Well, this is an incredibly popular story about an incredibly It's not like popular. this is an audience that just just was given the right to purchase things. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? They've been consuming stuff for a long time. Right, exactly, exactly. And so I, I do think that, that that's been a theme that's emerged and certainly applies to Hidden Figures, which is um, an inspirational story. Story of, uh, of black women and, and mathematics and science. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, that that's certainly a lesson that I hope that, that studio uh, execs take from, from that. But I also think that, you know, you look at the best-selling or the highest box office returns to movies in 2016, and it, it still is a list dominated by sequels, adaptations, and reboots. Yep. Uh, it's, it's, it's Rogue One, it's Captain America, it's, uh, I guess, a couple um, of, you know, Other animated things films. involving like, cartoons. Uh, yeah, right. Sing is really good, yeah. by the way. All the, I see all those kids' movies now because I'm old and I have kids, and they're all way better than they have to be. They're yeah. all totally acceptable, and Sing's pretty good. It's really interesting that maybe because they have to be, they have to have an element of simplicity and uh, formula, but it gives them a really interesting opportunity to play with language a lot of the time, that some of the cleverest movies of the last not just 10 years, 20 years, are animated films, like, you know, I, Shrek or Zootopia. Yeah, I went into this like, thinking, all right, having kids, owning kids, <laughs> that, 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 all right, the Pixar movies will be good enough that I'll like them, and I'm going to see a ton of crappy stuff um, that isn't very good. My kids will like it, and that's just part of the penance I had to pay for having mm-hmm. kids. But even stuff like Angry Birds yeah. is 
totally amusing and there's grown-up jokes and there's good poo-poo jokes too. Right, yeah. Poopy jokes. Rather than making you guess the next one, it's a song, um, straight, we're going to play you a clip. Uh-huh. Sean, you ready? My bitch is bad and bullshit. Bad. Cooking up dope with a Uzi. Dope. My niggas are savage, ruthless. Hey. We got thudders and hundred rounds too. All right. There's no no hint of recognition, so I don't feel is so that, bad. Is that Black Beatles? Good guess. That's number two. Okay. And by the way, I could not identify Black Beatles. And I'm also psyched that we just earned our explicit rating for this week's, <laughs> this week's show. Um, they did have the name of the song in there. It's Bad and Bougie. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And it's by Migos. Oh. Do you, do you know what Migos is? Who Migos are? I cannot say that I do. No. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm slightly is ahead that of you. apostrophe Migos? I don't think so. Okay. It's M-I-G-O-S. They got a shout-out from uh, um, Donald Glover, the creator of Atlanta. Oh, interesting. At the Golden Globes. They're featured. Weird. There's a in Atlanta. But I only know this because I always like listen to the, the Channel 33 guys, the, the Bill Simmons spinoff of Grantland. Right. Anyway, so that's the number one song in America. Since you don't know what it is, <laughs> you're going to be at a loss here. But tell me why it's popular to my ears, to my old guy ears. This sounds like a lot of other songs. I can't identify why it's different than them. Well, the other thing I would say is that, you know, uh, the only thing that, that, that I guess I know about the song is that Donald Glover gave them a shout out uh, at the Golden Globes. Um, and I don't know how it was performing before then, uh, but there are several stories in the books about, uh, in the book about songs that were relatively popular and then they'll appear in a Super Bowl commercial and yeah. suddenly they'll be the number one song it, of the year. Atlanta is a really niche show, right? People like you and me and people who listen to this podcast, which is a big audience, um, watch Atlanta. It's not a giant show. I think, I think it hit num- hitting number one and Donald Glover giving it a shout out were probably concurrent. Yeah, and you mentioned that the Golden Globes were one of the most watched uh, yeah. p- uh, pieces of television in the last week. So, I mean, that's, that's advertising for uh, 35, maybe 40 million people, which is, you know, maybe, I guess, twice as big as the so podcast Migos audience. got a Golden Globe bump. Yeah, we, we need to get on a, on a Golden Globe show. You should, you right. should look into that. Derek Thompson, this was super awesome. Um, it was great to play hip-hop for you and that you didn't identify. It makes me feel <laughs> less old. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Um, you can go help Derek by buying his book, which is out as we speak, Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in an Age of Distraction. You can also click on his articles at The Atlantic or even subscribe, pay cash money to read your stuff. Please do. I don't need to tell you how to listen to this because you're listening to it right now. If you want to review us on iTunes, that's cool. If you want to tell people about this on Twitter, that's great too. You can also listen to Kara Swisher's awesome podcast, Recode Decode. Lauren Good has Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thank you to our sponsors. And thanks to Digital Media for helping to make this show possible. I'm back next week. Before I'm back, I'll be at Code Media talking to all kinds of cool people. It's probably too late for you to buy a ticket. In fact, it may have happened. Don't worry, you can hear all of the uh, audio from that eventually at Recode Replay. So you can go listen to all of that at Recode Replay over at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can read all about it at Recode.net. I'm sure you're all reading over at Recode.net every day anyway. So no need to tell you that. I will see you next week.